Father, now we praise you that this book, your inspired word, is profitable, all of it. All scripture is profitable for correction and teaching, for instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good thing. And so I pray, Father, that you would equip us now and instruct us now and convict us now and encourage and all the things that you intend to accomplish through your word this morning. I pray that none of it, Father, would strike us as old or unuseful, but it would be fresh and new and for your glory, and that you would inspire us to live more holy lives for Jesus' sake. And it's for his glory that we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 4 through 6 this morning. And let me begin this morning by say that, saying that I think there's probably no better gauge of how real our faith is than the twin tests of sex and money. How we respond to sexual temptation and how we respond to the temptations of wealth reveal much about our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 6:24, "You cannot serve God and money, mammon, if you have the King James. Now, what do you suppose a person says in his heart when he is serving money? Do we not serve money when we say, more of you, more of you, I want more of you, and I'll do whatever it takes to have more of you, and I can't be happy without you. Likewise, we might say that a person is serving sex or lust when, we, when he says in his heart, more of you. I am willing to compromise the most precious things in my life to have more of you. On the other hand, when I am truly serving God, when I'm truly serving God from my heart, my heart says with David, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire nothing but you, Psalm 73. Or as the Apostle Paul said, oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of even sharing in his sufferings. Which I think is just another way to say, more of you, Lord, more of you. I will sacrifice everything in this life to have more of you. That, beloved, is pure, undiluted, 24 karat, God-exalting worship. It's worship. And so these two issues, sexuality and wealth, are really worship issues. They're really worship issues. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money because it is impossible for the human heart to truly delight in the excellencies of Christ and the pleasures of sin at the same time. Can't happen. It can't happen. He says no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You can't sit down and watch an explicit R-rated 
movie in your home and worship Jesus at the same time. It can't happen. The problem is, of course, that the lure of sexual pleasure and the appeal of financial power are two of the most potent temptations the human heart encounters in this life. And every adult hearing my voice today has experienced the strong gravitational pull of these two temptations. The question is, what provision has God made to help us successfully fight off these temptations so that we can know the joy of pleasing Him through the desires that we have. There's nothing wrong with the desires. It's where do those desires take us? And this is the concern of the author of Hebrews in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 13. He knows that the most significant battles we face are not external battles against those who might persecute us, as was the case with these Hebrew believers. They were facing a potential new wave of persecution. But rather, the most significant battles are the internal battles against sin that would rot our souls from the inside out. That's what he's concerned about. And So with that in mind, let's read beginning with verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So this is where the author would have us go. And I think there are two statements that kind of summarize this text. Two truths that he would have us grasp in these three verses. Number one, marriage is better than the promise of of immorality. Marriage is better than the promise of immorality. The first section of chapter 3 is kind of a crash course in Christian ethics, starting with verse 1. And because we're living for a better country that has been promised us, the author says, where there is a city whose architect and builder is God, there ought to be an observable difference in the way that we live as opposed to the way that they live. There ought to be a really significant difference just on its face with regard to how we live as opposed to how they live. And so he says in verse 1, the Christian ethic is a call to, to loving believers, to love fellow believers. Verse 2, the Christian ethic is a call to love strangers. Verse 3, the Christian ethic it's a call to love prisoners. And in verse 4, the Christian ethic is a call to sexual purity. When the book of Hebrews was written, Christianity, frankly, was hardly 40 years old. Can you imagine? Christianity was hardly 40 years old. I mean, I'm only 44. I mean, if Christianity had started in my lifetime, it would have started when I was 
if 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 I were living in this day, it would have started when I was 40 years old. I mean, four years old. That's how short a period of time we're talking about here between the time Jesus rose again from the dead and the time the author of Hebrews wrote this letter at the end of the well, toward the end of the first century before 70 A.D. But already false teachings on Christian ethics were rising. And one of those became evident through the teaching of the so-called Christian ascetics. These were the people who taught that virginity is necessary for Christian perfection. And if you lived among the ascetics of this time, you would, be, you would have not been allowed to get married. Marriage was forbidden. Marriage was viewed as base, as vile, as sinful. To them, marriage was a significant compromise of Christian principles because of everything that's involved in the marriage relationship. It's physical. And they didn't like that. They had problems with physicality. It was the spiritual that was meaningful. Everything physical was questionable at best and probably evil. And so it was because of such teaching that the Apostle Paul, for example, warned Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.3, that in the last days apostate teachers would forbid marriage. But this was not what God had said. God had never forbidden marriage. To the contrary, God invented marriage. He commanded the body of Christ to hold marriage in the highest honor. And the word for honor here means great worth, costly, precious. That's how we are to see marriage. God the Father honored marriage when he established it all the way back in the garden. Jesus honored marriage when he performed his very first miracle where? At a wedding. And the Holy Spirit honored marriage when... In Ephesians chapter 5, he uses the marital relationship as a model for Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ. And so it's safe to say then that anyone who desires to please God in the way they live will have a high regard for marriage. And this is especially important in a society like ours that is obsessed with sensuality. Perhaps that could be traced back to a major paradigm shift of worldview that has taken place during the second half of the 20th century. Prior to the 1960s, it was commonly understood that the universe consisted of two spheres, one of which was visible and one of which was spiritual. You didn't have to be a church-attending member of society to believe that when your life is over, there will be a day when each person will have to render an account before God relative to how they lived. Everybody understood that. Regardless of your misconceptions about God, regardless of your misconceptions about this life, regardless of your misconceptions about heaven and hell and salvation and anything else, generally speaking, especially in the Western world, if you didn't have to be a believer, you could be a full-fledged, card-carrying unbeliever and still believe that there is more to this life than just what we see. But in the latter half of the 20th century, a fundamental shift occurred wherein the general populace began buying the idea that what you see is what you get. 
In other words, nothing exists except for what we can see and hear and touch and taste and smell. So we began hearing advertisers say things like this. You only go around once, so grab all the gusto you can. You remember that? And everybody was jumping on that. And it was, advertising was, was kind of exposing the new understanding of the culture as to what the universe is like. We don't believe the universe is spiritual and physical. We only believe that it's physical. So the universe is the only thing that's eternal. This life is all there is. If our planet dies, it's doom for life in the universe. And so many things connect to this. It affects every area of our society. And when this kind of thinking prevails, the measure of morality and ethics in society is no longer the Word of God, no longer the Ten Commandments, but rather the new standard of morality is majority opinion of the, of the society at large or the majority opinion of the most powerful people in the country. And since society has come to believe that the most valuable things in life are the things that make us feel good, marriage is now viewed as an antiquated idea that only is useful to the degree that I think it can make me happy. If I think that it meets my needs, if I think marriage will make me feel good, then I'll get married. And at whatever point I decide that marriage doesn't make me feel good anymore, I'm out. And I'll just grab a new spouse, and we'll try this again. But when there is no such thing as a permanent marriage, because there is no such thing as an eternal value. So why is cohabiting so common in our day? Why are, so many, why are there so many unwed mothers? Why has homosexuality so recently entered the realm of social acceptability? Why do so many teenagers get pregnant? Why does... The pornography industry rake in an annual revenue that the, that the NFL, NBA, and all the professional sports are incapable of making. In fact, if you combine, latest statistic I heard is if you combine NFL, NBA, baseball, and all professional sports, all of their revenue for the entire year, it doesn't come close to what the pornography industry is raking in year after year. Why is that? It's because while professing themselves to be religious, we have become practical atheists. We've rejected God's standard because we have rejected God as a culture. We've rejected God. But those who claim to love God ought also to love his commands, believing that what he requires of our sexuality is for our good, because it's not as though God is opposed to sex. To the contrary, he created it. Did you notice in verse 4 how many words are in italics? Whenever you see words in italics in the Bible, it means the translators had to add English words to help us understand what they think that verse means. And this is the case with this verse. He says in verse 4, marriage is to be held, all, th- all four of those words were added, in honor among all, and the marriage, marriage is added, bed, is to be, those three words were added, undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 
Um, the verse might be translated literally like this. Marriage is honorable among all men and the marriage bed undefiled. Marriage is honorable among all men and the marriage bed undefiled. Now I see two points here that are worth making, I think. First, everyone who desires to be married should know that God loves marriage and wants no one to look down on it. Listen, even if God has gifted you with the desire and capacity to remain single, you should hold the institution of marriage in high regard. Now, this was convicting to me because when I was single, uh, I used to have a, I told you, I think I told you about this, I used to have a coffee cup in my dorm room that said, I love being single. And I would disparage marriage. I would say, there's no way, I'm never going to get married Never going to get tied up, never going to get tied down. You know, the old ball and chain, we used to make jokes about that. And, you know, why is it that in Spanish, uh, esposa means uh, uh, marriage, partner, spouse, and esposas means handcuffs? Why is that? Uh, and so we would joke about these things all the time, and we would really disparage marriage. And then when I met my wife-to-be, she found out I had that cup, and she said, one day I'm going to shatter that thing. And she did. But listen, if you're single, especially you single guys, most single girls want to get married. Most of you single guys want to be free and funky, right? You want to be free to do as you please. Okay, understand that, but do not disparage what God says is precious and honorable. God loves marriage. And if you desire to be married, you desire a good thing. The only caution I would have is don't desire it too much. Let me give you a good definition of lust. Here's the definition of lust. The definition of lust is this. I lust any time I want something so bad I'm willing to sin to get it. Or if I'm willing to sin if I don't get it. Now, often meet women in, in a counseling situation who are just broken and they've made really bad decisions because they so want to get married that they're making sinful choices or they have a sinful attitude. It's so important that we understand that whenever our desire, either for a better job or more money or for physical pleasure in marriage or outside of marriage or, or whatever the issue is, when one of my children sees another one of my children playing with their favorite toy and they want it really bad, lust can creep in. And whenever we have a conflict like that, we step in and say, what did you want? I wanted that car. How badly did you want it? And they look at me funny and go, oh, no, because I know what's coming. Did you want it so bad that you were willing to sin to get it? That it was no longer a legitimate desire. It was a lust. You sinned. You have sinned against your brother, and you've sinned against God, and you need to confess that as such. Second thing that I think we need to notice here is everyone should know, not only that God loves marriage, but everyone should know that God regards the sexual aspect of marriage as holy and righteous and good. I get that from the word bed here. Now, you have to be able to look into the group Greek here and see this. 
The word in the Greek is koite, from which we get our English word coitus, which literally means sexual intercourse. The word bed is used as kind of a euphemism for the physical relationship between a man or a woman. After they are married, the relationship, he is saying, is undefiled. It's undefiled. It is holy and righteous and beautiful and good in the eyes of God. I did a little search on this word undefiled. I was hoping to find it in Hebrews, and I did. The word undefiled in Hebrews 7.26 refers to Jesus, who was holy, innocent, and undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, the marriage bed is undefiled. God doesn't view it as a dirty thing. God doesn't view it as something that is unacceptable or questionable or tainted by sin. No, if you're married, then that's holy. Your relationship with your spouse there is holy. And it's good. It's an act of worship. And it should be seen as such. Brothers, the end of verse 4 gives us the contrast. The word in verse 4 says, for, it's gar, depending on how you translate it, it could be either for or but. I think we can translate this but because I think he's making a contrast. He's saying marriage and the marriage bed are undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The word for fornicators here is you could guess it, pornos, pornos, from which we get the word pornography. You know what the author is saying? He's saying God blesses those who entrust their sexual desires to the promises of his word. God blesses those who entrust their sexual desires or resolve to have their sexual desires ruled by the promises of God rather than the promises of sin. But unrepentant, unbelieving, fornicators and adulterers go to hell. Now, I know that's not a popular thing to say. And I realize people get all upset when you start talking about the sin of homosexuality. Folks, the sin of homosexuality is only one of the sins mentioned. It is only one kind of sexual sin that God judges. If you're sitting around playing with the Internet, thinking you're free in Jesus, you can do anything you want, you've become a libertine, and you think that just because Jesus died, you can do whatever you want with your eyes and your time because forgiveness is granted and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, etc., you're playing a dangerous game. A dangerous game. Because you may very well be self-deceived. There is much more at stake here as you sit alone in front of your computer than you may think. It's not just the wrath of your wife that you need to worry about. It's the wrath of God. First Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Listen to this. I'm going to give you several texts. You don't have to look them up, but you might want to pencil them in. Or you can get on our website and download these notes if you just want to listen. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. This is Paul speaking to the church of Corinth. He says, Do you not know 
that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. There's, there's the problem. You might be deceived. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. You think you can do that and inherit the kingdom of God? What he's saying is people who act like that go to hell. Ephesians 5, 5 and 6. Paul said, this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You just can't do that and claim to be a Christian. I mean, if the Holy Spirit isn't just stabbing you in the heart and bringing you to repentance and causing you to agonize until repentance comes... Something is desperately wrong. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you may very well be self-deceived. People will ask, can I look at pornography on the Internet and be a Christian? And I would say, if you're addicted to pornography, I would seriously question your salvation. If you're doing it over and over and over again, as a habitual lifestyle, you better come to terms with the, with the fact that you may be self-deceived. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. For it is God's will for you to be holy, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defile his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you now. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in holiness. Sanctification. This is not just a matter of pornography. It's about how you relate to women on the job. Ladies, how you relate to men on the job, how you dress when you're there or when you come to church. Revelation 21.8, this is all over the New Testament. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murders and immoral persons, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Brothers, I'm speaking to you specifically since our wives are, most of them are, many of them at least, are at the women's retreat. Brothers, are we keeping ourselves sexually pure? The only way to be victorious in our battle against lust is to trust in the promise of God that His way is better. It's more fulfilling. It's more satisfying. Proverbs 5.19 says, It is appropriately intoxicating when it is within the bounds that God has ordained. It's the only place in the Bible where God commands you, or at least gives you license to be drunk, and it is to be intoxicated with the love of the wife of your youth. It is not for anything outside of marriage. 
A physical relationship within marriage, in God's eyes, is an act of worship that honors Him. That very same act outside of marriage is damnable because it is false worship. As a practical help in this area, let me commend to you Josh Harris's little book, which used to be called Not Even a Hint, but has recently been retitled. It's now called Sex is Not the Problem, Lust is. A lot of practical stuff in there. I think every man and woman ought to read this, if not for yourself, than to help those you know. It's full of scripture and very, very helpful. The fact that he, the author of Hebrews throws in the idea of greed here, uh, I'm sorry, that, that I'm talking about Ephesians 5.3. Paul says in Ephesians 5.3, but among you, This is where Josh Harris gets the title of his book. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. No immorality and no greed. Now, the fact that he throws the idea of greed in here sets us up for the second principle or the second Christian ethic that the author is giving to us this morning and wants us to consider. First, he would have us believe that marriage is better than immorality. Second, he would have us cling to the promise that God is better than the promise of wealth. God is better than the promise of wealth. Look at verses 5 and 6. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Next to the temptations of sexual lust, the second greatest category of temptation adult believers face, I think, is greed. There's not a single person hearing my voice this morning who's not susceptible to the grip of the promise of wealth. Paul told Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But again, this is exactly why God wants us to strive to keep our character free from the love of money. The love of money is a snare. It's a snare. The love of money is a snare. Covetousness and greed follow a principle of increasing desire and decreasing satisfaction. Increasing desire and decreasing satisfaction, a form of the law of diminishing returns. The more you desire, the more you pursue, the less satisfied you are with it. The more you desire and the more you pursue, the less satisfied you are with it. The reason God doesn't want our hearts to be captivated by a love of money, regardless of whether we're rich or poor, is because money makes a lousy God. Solomon said, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who who loves abundance with his income. This, too, is vanity. It's emptiness. The pursuit of wealth is emptiness. I know people, and so do you, who are believers, claim to be believers, and probably are believers, but they're constantly on the search for the goose with the golden egg. They're constantly running after this idea, that scheme, this possibility, that networking thing. 
trying to find a way to make more money because they are not at all pleased where God has them. And it's not that money is the problem. It's the love of money. And the reason love of money is a problem is because you can't love it and God. Because you can't worship it and God at the same time. And let me just say as a caveat here, I'm not talking primarily to rich people. It's possible to be wealthy and not love money. On the other hand, it is possible to be poor and be a lover of money. And it's, we're not just talking about the green stuff. We're not talking about dollars and checks and gold. We're talking about this desire to have more, have more. I can't afford it, but I want it. i got to have it. And so we get it. And it may be that we're spending money we don't have to impress people we don't know. And that's disastrous. That's disastrous. There are many, many poor people who all they think about is money. And there are many rich people who all they think about is money. My point is, it's not a matter of how much you have. The point is really, what is the desire of your heart? What do you love? Do you worship God? Or do you worship gold? What do you worship? And this really is the same issue that he covered in the previous verse, except the object of your worship was not money. The object of your worship is uh, comfort. It's pleasure. It's a, being a lover of pleasure. But it's really just a different branch off the same tree. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. This is not saying that it's wrong to have wealth. Certainly there are excellent examples of people in biblical history like Job and Abraham and Nicodemus and probably Lydia. And there are women who followed Jesus everywhere who seem to have been the women of means who were perhaps widowed and had money and followed and met the needs of the Lord as he traveled. And they were both wealthy and godly. All these people were wealthy and godly. But being wealthy has a significant downside because, you see, it's difficult to have it without trusting it. Difficult to have money without trusting it. And Jesus referred to it as the deceitfulness of wealth. Oh, if I just had more money, then I'd be happy. Because then I could have a strong nest egg. Well, the last couple of weeks have proven how vain that is. Or I could have that new house. Or I could have that new furniture. Or I could have that new car. Oh, if I only had enough money to do that, then I'd be happy. And maybe in the mystery of God's providence, he gives us the funds so that we can have it. And we find out shortly after we make the purchase. You ever heard of buyer's remorse? You immediately start feeling bad about it. Like, oh, what have I done? I've spent all this money, and it's just going to be a problem. It's going to take more of my time. It's going to take me away from the kids. It's going to take me, you know, I'm going to have to repair it all the time. I'm going to have to keep it painted. I'm going to have to keep it tuned up. I'm going to have to spend more money to keep it. It's the deceitfulness of wealth. 
It's deceitful because it promises to take care of our needs and to bring us fulfillment and satisfaction and joy. But the promise is a lie. It cannot do those things. It doesn't have the capacity to do those things. These are the very things that God has promised to give us. In fact, that's exactly what the remainder of the Hebrews passage is designed to communicate. He says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, or might I say, being content with what God has given you. Whatever you have, whatever that is really yours, is really God's. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job said. That's our attitude. God, my new car... It's your car, and that can be an act of worship. I remember when I bought the nicest car I ever purchased with my own money was that, uh, <laughs> that Toyota Camry that got sucked up in the tornado last year. Um, and I used to get in that car, and it was, it, was, it, boy, it was the nicest car I ever had in my life to that point. And I'd get in that car, and I'd just smile. And I'd ride down the road, and literally I would say, God, you are so good to me. Why did you give me this? I don't deserve this. God, anytime you want it back, you just take it. He went. (laughs) He let me enjoy it for years. And it was appropriate worship. But that's not what happens most of the time. Most of the time, the deceitfulness of wealth is that the promise is there. This will make you happy. This will make you happy. This will make you happy. And all of your hope is in the promise of that thing. Rather than in the promise of God, I'll give you this car for you to enjoy, and if I take it away, I'm still yours. You haven't lost a thing. And that was absolutely true. Absolutely true. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have for This is why you should be content and not love money. For he, God himself, has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. God, even when the stock market crashes, I haven't moved. I'm still your provider. I was your provider before it crashed. I was the reason you have all that stock. And I'm the reason why it's gone. I never change. I'm always your provider. And sometimes we need to be reminded that we are dependent upon Him. And sometimes we need to be, we need to have our financial portfolio kicked around a little bit to remind us that the only thing that never changes, the only rock under our feet that will never move is our God in Christ. That's where all of our hope is. God, I don't know where the money is going to come from to pay this next bill, but I praise you that you've promised to meet all of my needs according to your riches and glory. Thank you, God. Help me not sin as I look for your provision. Help me to not sin with my mouth. Help me not sin with my attitude. Help me not sin with my behavior while I wait and hope patiently for your provision. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. 
so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. Why, why is that important? I suggest to you that it's important because God, over 300 times in the Bible, said, do not be afraid. In other words, not talking about the emotion of fear. It's talking about being ruled by that emotion of fear. Do not be ruled by fear. And you will be ruled by fear if you love money. If you are a lover of money or lover of pleasure. And did you notice here that this is a promise? This is another promise from the book of Hebrews. He's quoting from the Old Testament. But it's another promise. We see this again and again and again. That what God is calling us to in the Christian life is to be ruled by the promises of God rather than being ruled by the promises of sin. What rules your life? Is it the promise that God will never desert me? He'll never forsake me. He's promised The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Do we ever say that to your soul? Soul, remember right now, with the news you just received, remember that it's not your wealth. Remember that it's not your comfort. Remember that it's not your bank. Remember it's not your wife. Remember it's not your computer. Remember it's not your car that is your helper. Remember, it's not my employer that's my helper. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The believer's character is to be saturated, not with covetousness or greed, but with contentment. We've seen this as we've traveled around the world. And those of you who are traveling on one of these trips, you're going to see it. You get into one of these third world countries, we're going to Tajikistan. Eric told me, tell your family that when we get to Amati, Amati, um, uh, Kazakhstan, we'll stop there. We'll spend the night in the Bible Institute before we hop on that rickety old plane that goes to Dushanbe, Tajikistan. Just tell your family that when we get there to Amati, that we will call them and we'll tell them we're fine and everything's going well, but and we're going to the dark side of the moon and we won't be back for a week, so don't expect to hear from us. But when we get there, Eric didn't have to tell me this, I know this, we're going to find believers there who are destitute of the things we believe we need to be happy. They will be destitute of those things And secondly, I know this. They will be more joyful in their relationship with Jesus than most of us have ever been in our lives. Because every day they get up and the only thing they have is Him. And He has never failed them. Our lives need to be saturated, not with covetousness, but with contentment. Ladies, You're listening to my voice. I know most of you, many of you at least, struggle with this. You go to one of the other ladies' houses. You see what's happening there. Beautiful it is. How neatly they have it. Accessorized. And you think, hmm, wish my house were like that. Don't go there. God has given you what you have. It's a gift. 
And he's called you to find the joy of contentment in what he has given you because along with all of those gifts, he has given you himself. And if he takes it all away and your house burns to the ground tomorrow, if you have him, you are the wealthiest woman in the world. You are the most richly and prosperous woman in the world because nobody can have more than God. Nobody can have a better promise than the promise, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Therefore, you have no need to fear. Let the house burn. Let the car get sucked up in a tornado. You have me when your health is gone. You have me when your money is gone. You have me when you have no means of, of fulfilling your physical desires anymore. You have me. You have me. Be content with what you have. We will know true contentment in this life to the degree that we embrace the fact that we have God. If we have God, we don't need a new house or a new car or a new furniture or a new carpet to make us happy. He is our joy. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire nothing but you. If you give me more than that, Wonderful. If you take it away again, that's great. As long as I have you, O Lord. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As I said last week, that was specifically about the ups and downs of financial condition throughout his life. I know how to be content whether I abound or whether I suffer need. Doesn't matter. My anchor holds. I have God, and He has me. And no amount of wealth or no lack of wealth, no amount of pleasure or lack of pleasure has any bearing on that whatsoever. We have God. He is our all in all. He is our joy. He is our delight. He is our satisfaction. He is everything God has provided for us in Jesus. Can there be anything more upside down than a true Christian who is discontent. Paul said even when he was having nothing, even when we have nothing, 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, even when we have nothing, we possess everything. And think about this. If the Lord is my shepherd... I shall not want. Isn't that great? Isn't that a promise to live by? To be ruled by? There's so many examples of this from history. One of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, at the end of his life was brought before the Roman emperor who was furious with him for his influence on the republic the people who were following his Christian teachings. And they brought him before the emperor under threat of banishment. I've got the transcript of what was said. Want to hear it? Chrysostom looked at the emperor of Rome, who had his life in his hands, had the whole world in his hands. Chrysostom said, Thou canst not banish me from this world this world is my father's house, but I will slay thee, 
said the emperor. Nay, you canst not, said the noble champion of the faith, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then I will take away your treasure. Nay, but thou canst not, for my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there. But I will drive thee away from man, and thou shalt have no friend left. Nay, thou canst not, for I have a friend in heaven, whom thou canst not separate me from. I defy thee, emperor, for there is nothing that thou canst do to hurt me. What did he know? I have God, I win. You lose. Kill me if you wish. Ladies and gentlemen, meet a man who knew what it is to fight the promises of wealth with the promises of God. Meet a man who knew how to be content whether he had little or much or nothing at all so long as he had God. Meet a man whose treasure was securely laid up in heaven and whose heart was fixed upon the one who sits at the right hand of God. Take from me what you will. I am content. For I have God. Beloved, this is the character of a Christian. His is a life that is governed not by the promises of sex or the promises of wealth, but by the unshakable promises of God in Christ. Do you believe that? This is why fooling around a little bit with sensuous things that you know are inappropriate is not a small thing. It is a terrible insult to the one who claims to be your all in all. The promise for you and I this morning is this. That a life that is ruled by the promises of God will never be enslaved by the lure of pleasure and wealth. Let me say it again. The life ruled by the promises of God will never be enslaved by the lure of pleasure, pleasure and wealth. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that all of your promises are infinitely more precious than the promise, any promise that sin can lay before us. And yet, Father, we confess we are so easily deceived. We know this to be true. We need to be reminded again and again and again that it's true because we're so prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it to thy courts above. Father, we need your grace. It's not as though you haven't provided enough, but we are so easily swayed. And we prefer the mud pies of the world to the treasure of Christ. Oh God, forgive us. And I pray, Father, that to the degree that these things are true of us, that we're not in our character lining up with your description of where we should be. Oh, Father, that you would grant repentance by your grace and for your glory and to our excellent and abiding joy. 
Lord, these things I pray by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen and amen.